I'm your host, Suzanne Legrand. Today, my guest is David Beispiel, poet, teacher, and founder of the Attic Institute. So how did you find your way to writing poetry? Well, I started writing in my early 20s. I was living alone, uh, more or less, in um, a small town in Vermont, Brownsville, Vermont. We had 42 people in that town, and I was alone a lot. Keats calls it too much in solitude. And I just began to write. I had read a, a lot of poems up to that point, loved reading poems, and wanted to write poems, but didn't feel like I had the ballast or the scaffolding as a reader in order to pursue writing poems. I think a lot of people do it the other way around. They have some urge or or inspiration to write, and they begin writing, and then later on they begin to turn their attention to the enormity of the art and learning what's in there and what's in the past and what the contemporary idiom is like and begin to adjust. And for me, I just went about it the complete opposite way. I had read a ton of poetry before I started to write myself. What attracted you to poetry? I think uh, just how pure it was, uh, and still is, um, that you could try to say so much in so few words, have a maximum impact with minimal amount of words, uh, that was attractive to me. Um, the idea that you could create something out of solitude was very appealing to me at the time. And um, that you could have potentially an enormous impact on the language through an art form. Uh, you could have an enormous impact on people's ability to reperceive the world through the words which they use every day, arranged in an order which is exciting and intimate and inspiring. Why is it that writers need community? Writers, as much as we want solitude to make the work, we need the quiet and the time alone to make the work. For those who want to publish, you're actually looking for community. Right? You're not writing only to yourself. You're, you are trying to write to motivate readers to fill in the blank, right? to act, to feel, to think, to notice, to care, to be horrified. One of the great things for me about a country this size is that we can have um, uh, small groups of interests that are actually quite large, right? So take poetry, for example. Well, it's a tiny art compared to television or compared to mass art, but there is are to use an oxymoron, huge enclaves of poets in every city, in every state, in every region. And it's an enormous, within its world, on the poetry planet, it's everything. When you step back or zoom back, you recognize that the poetry planet is quite small in the universe, but its impact is quite large. So let's talk a little bit about the Attic Institute. The Attica Institute began in 1999. It's a place where writers come together to create community around creativity. Uh, They do this by sitting in on workshops and classes in fiction, in memoir, uh, poetry, screenwriting. So we have those classes. We also have a couple of special programs. We have the Athenaeum, which is a year-long course of study for a dozen writers. Uh, It's kind of an alternative to the, to the low-residency MFA. And that's a really special program that combines 
a one-on-one rigor with developing a small community that we're really seeding a community because each year we add another dozen writers. And so we're creating this brand new literary scene uh, in Portland. We also have the Hawthorne Fellows Program, which is for a small group of writers to try to finish work and publish it. What makes the institute, the Attic Institute, different than taking a class at a college or alternatively belonging to a writer's group and getting critiques from other writers? So we have a lot of people who come in, they find community, they find motivation, they find accountability, and they sustain that with the writers they meet at the Attic. The Attic is a place where people can continue to come, and they do year after year in order to stay accountable to their literary ambitions. I have a student... He was in the very first class at the Attic. Uh, that was back, we had six people in that class. This year, I think we had over 700 people come through the Attic for classes and one-on-one work. And um, every summer, he takes a class. He just wants, he uses it as a way to kind of stay focused on his work. What skills do you think are most important for a writer to cultivate? Well, I would guess there's a lot of categories for that. I think... Um, One priority for a writer is to be open to experience, to be alert to the things around you, uh, to care, uh, and to have a strong attitude. So that's one set of skills, emotional skills. I think, um, how do you recognize what can work and can't work in your pieces? You read a lot. And the more you read, the more you begin to see patterns that writers who are successful use to succeed. Uh, You don't have to invent the the narrative model. That's another skill. Uh, writing with some uh, methodology where you're trying to think through the palm of your hand into a pencil, some organized uh, form of writing, whether it's a poem or an essay or a story. And, and then there are sub-skills for all these areas. But I think uh, generally it all comes under the category of being alert, of trying to look at the world, pay attention to the world, decide what matters to you, and to write in that direction. Let's talk a little bit about the creative process. You just published a book recently. Yeah, it's called Every Writer Has a Thousand Faces, but it's really an argument about creativity in general. It's a short book, 120 pages or so, and it uh, offers readers a couple of things, I think. One, it makes the case that there are multiple ways in which to go about making your your work. And then it also uses my own experience as a model for uh, developing different ways in which you can go about writing. And then finally, it presents some options for writers. It's, it gets quite pragmatic. In general, the, uh, I argue in the book that failure is the engine to creativity. You know, so much of what we do as artists is not accomplish the thing we're trying to accomplish. We have a vision of a story, and we try to write it, and it's, it comes out to be not the story we set out to write. You have a vision of performing a dance, a choreography, and when you go to do it, it's not what you saw you wanted it to be. And that, that aspect of failure is, goes across all the arts, and I think across most human experience. I use an example in the book, I borrow it from a friend of mine and a, an artist known here in town, Phil Sylvester. He's the teacher and uh, 
a master of the drawing studio up in southeast uh, Portland. And Phil tells his students that when they first start to do life studies, that students often get freaked out because they don't know where to begin. If you've ever tried to draw a nude, you think, okay, now where do I start? The ankle? The ear? I mean, how do you even... Suddenly, uh, the human body, which you think you know, you don't know at all. And... And he uses the example of Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein. And he says if Dr. Frankenstein tried to make a, a human being, and he made a monster. And he said if he wasn't such a, Phil says, a crybaby, then Dr. Frankenstein might have made nine more monsters trying to make a human being. But he still would have made a monster. He could have made a hundred, and they still would be monsters. He would never make a human being. Because even as you draw, you can't draw a human being. You can only draw a failure of a likeness of a human being. And once you begin to recognize that, that you cannot be perfect in the pursuit of it, then if you begin to pursue failing, you begin to discover new things about your own imagination, about what's possible, and about what it is you might actually be trying to say as a writer. So you recognize that you're never going to realize your ideal vision. So what do you go for instead? Well, the, it's ideal because it can't be achieved. You go for the ideal vision. But you recognize that you, what you may discover along the way can be quite interesting if it is not actually, the, even if it's not the ideal. There's also a, a sort of percentages involved. Most of the time, if I sit down to work on a poem or other people do, you don't get the poem you're after. Well, let's call that a failure. I mean, we're using failure as a positive. Compare that to a baseball player, a hitter. The ones that make the Hall of Fame, they hit the ball three out of ten times, which means what they're really good at, what they're really masters of, is not hitting. Seven out of ten times, they fail to get a hit. Three out of ten times, they succeed, and that makes them Hall of Famers. So if you use that percentage in your own artwork, and you think, well, if I can put out all this work, and I can keep failing at it, inside of here will be successes. And what I think happens for writers especially is they come up with the draft, they try to work on it, they try to fix it, they try to hone it, they try to sharpen it, they keep going. And as soon as they start trying to resolve, the doors and windows of perception begin to close in. You can't make other choices that you might have made if you looked at it and said, that's not working, what if I took that out and just went in a whole other direction just to see what happens. So I argue against revision. And instead of trying to revise something, I, su I suggest instead it might be an opportunity to make another version of something. And after a while, when you have 7, 8, 50 versions of something, you find the version that you're most interested in. You find the version that you feel like you have the most connection to. And you pursue that. And then you write in a, in a traditional way with revision and trying to resolve things. But what happens along the way is I now have 50 versions of something. And I know so much more about my subject before I start writing what would be the first draft of the version I really want to work on. Whereas if you, if I sat down and just tried to write a draft and then make a second draft of that piece and another kind of keep layering over it like acetate, then I have one version and I have to learn about my subject as I rewrite. What's the difference between... 50 versions to get to one that you want to start with versus 50 drafts. Well, the 50 versions could be 50 wholly different things, right? 
you hear someone on the bus say, my father collapsed in the last run of his daily jog 25 years ago. And you think, oh, there's a story in that. And so you go home and you write, my father collapsed in his daily run 25 years ago. I haven't thought about it once until today when such and such happened. And you begin to follow that out. Many writers will then try to finish that piece. What I suggest is interesting for writers is to go back the next day and begin, my father collapsed in the, on the last leg of his daily run 25 years ago. When I try to think of that, I think of and go in a whole other direction and make another version of something that was springboarded by this phrase. And if you do that 25 days in a row, you'll start to change points of view because you won't write in the same point of view. You'll start to try out different voices. You'll, start, you'll try to try out different tones, different moods toward your material. And, the, and for 25 days, if you start with the same springboard, you'll have 25 different versions, 25 different pieces, and out of those 25, one of them or two of them or five of them might be really interesting to you, and the other is not so interesting. But you now know so much more about that phrase you heard on the bus so how do you identify then what a, a good failure is or one that you want to pursue? You can only pursue the thing you're most interested in. Uh, anytime you feel like you're, you know, forcing yourself to write something, you're usually f- going to make forced errors. And so that's how you figure it out. You use your passion and your interest and your compulsion to follow, follow the leads and go where you want to go. I'll give you an example. I'm working on a book now, a book of prose, that the title, for myself at least, I don't know what the title of the book will be, um, is called Hallelujah, The Biography of a Word. And, you know, the word itself has a very definite meaning, praise God. But off of that is all kinds of possibilities and all kinds of cultural touchstones, uh, biblical and pop. And I want to write about some intricacies of these, so how they interrelate or they don't interrelate and so on. And so I'm just making sketches, really. That's what I'm doing. Is I'm just writing things, writing little parts, looking at some of the psalms and writing responses to them. And I don't know what order it's going to be in. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know if it's going to be called this thing or not. But for a long while, I'll allow myself to fail day in and day out on this book while I try to f- learn about it. And then at some point, I will find something that I just can't stop thinking about. I can't stop following. I go, I got to go in that direction. I've got to write about Leonard Cohen. That's what I got to write about, right? Because of his song, Hallelujah. And I just go with it. But it's because by the time I get to that point, if that's where I'm headed, I will have explored Hallelujah so much more deeply than if I had just said, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to order it like this. I'm going to put the thing in this place. And so in that sense, writing isn't only about a product. It is about trying to explore your imagination. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more about the Attic Institute and David Byspiel's work, you can visit theatticwritersworkshop.com.